Father in heaven, we are grateful to be able to come to you in Jesus' name and give you the time before us. We know that you are interested in and have given us all that we need to understand the topic before us today. We thank you for your word. Most of all, we thank you for the incredible work that you have accomplished to make it possible for us to know you and have the hope of eternal life. And as we investigate some aspects of that again today, we ask for your blessing and the work of your Holy Spirit to do his work of illumination of the scriptures and the thoughts that we will consider together today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's topic is Jesus the only way. It's a question of the exclusivity of the gospel. Um, this is another one of those areas that has felt to me like, uh, like a really large landscape to survey. There is uh, a ton of uh, information there. I had this kind of this mental image of of us or me in my preparation time this week entering kind of a forest and the forest is the topic before us and there are many individual trees in that forest and and a number of different pathways through it that we could take today so i'm just telling you what i have done is is uh, chosen a path and and hoping to touch uh, a number of the trees that are out there and those hopefully that are most central to what we're Talking about how can we defend to a skeptic the uh, the idea that I'm sorry there is only one way that you can get to heaven there is only one way that you can come into a relationship with God these all these other ways are bogus they do not count and they will not help you and that of course is not an acceptable point of view to our culture. But I am offering you some perspectives today, okay? What's so special about Jesus? Why do we have to believe that the only way someone can know God, he is the only way that someone can know God or have eternal life? Uh, this is one of a little group of the top questions, the top um, uh, resistance that, that uh, that people have, along with ideas like we looked at last week, um, the question of universalism or um, does God send to hell those who have never heard of Jesus or who don't make a profession of faith? Um, the question of of a loving God and evil, and and this one, the exclusive nature of the gospel. These are the things that most often come up when you are talking with people who. Uh, are not Christians and are skeptics. The accusations that uh, are brought against us as evangelical Christians in this area is that that view, that there's only one way, is arrogant, intolerant, um, ignorant, dangerous, bigoted, narrow-minded, and out of step with our culture's view of diversity. Those are all words that, that I have and you have heard actually or read um, in opposition to or in questioning that idea. So let me give you a little background to our discussion today. And, and uh, this, this, I think, is our first um, main point on your outline. Um, understanding the landscape, kind of the two poles of this area of thought. If we have at the North Pole the New Testament teaching, that uh, of a gospel exclusively available through personal faith in the person and work of the Son of God, then the polar opposite, the South Pole, is pluralism. Exclusivism versus pluralism. Um, I'm not an expert in these things, but it's my general understanding that religious pluralism is a subset of the broader concept of cultural pluralism. And cultural pluralism simply describes a society with uh, ethnic, 
racial, religious, ideological diversity. And certainly, that's the kind of country in which we live. And that's, that's not a bad thing. Uh, and, and I'm going to use the term religious pluralism to describe very simply the idea that some have who are there in, in their thinking, uh, that all religions, all religions offer equally valid and legitimate paths to God. That's kind of the end game of commitment to religious pluralism in the way that I'm using it. Not just that there are different faiths and religions represented, but that the idea is that these are all equally valid. Uh, one of my resource books says, it's not just that many people have different ideas, but that they make truth claims, even contradicting ones, and assert that they are all equally valid. Let me give you a brief history of pluralism in America, just a little survey. When the first settlers came, think pilgrims, uh, they came here. Um, there were a variety of motivations for making that kind of a dangerous trip and coming to a new land. But the freedom to worship was a big part of that. And so that became a bedrock of American society, freedom of worship, which is basically the idea that, that we've committed to there not being a state church like in many European countries. Um, and so this freedom uh, expressed itself in this way. Any religious practice is okay. We will allow that in our culture. Um, it, it, as long as it doesn't uh, hurt somebody else. So in other words, you, you probably, we probably would not tolerate a religion that sacrifices young virgins to a volcano god here in America, right? Uh, but everything else pretty much, it, it's okay. We, we accept that, we tolerate that. And so in the early years, uh, in the early decades and beyond uh, of America's history, the Christian worldview was predominant. Our founders were either theists or deists. There was a general like-mindedness about Christianity. But as the, as the years uh, came along um, uh, to this day, then, then decades of immigration from very diverse cultures came to America. And we offered them safe haven here. And they bought into the 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 uh, the freedom of worship that's here and for some uh, they have continued to come even in recent times to be able to worship freely today though the landscape is very different than it was initially I, I know I'm I'm telling you things you know but let me just put a few numbers on it apparently only 46 percent of Americans claim to be Christian in some form and only 10% of American adults say that they hold a biblical worldview. So it's really different than it used to be. And so the conclusion of, of all of that is, is simply this. In a society where multiple religious beliefs coexist, secularism, colored with tolerance, leads to the false dichotomy, I'm quoting here from one of my sources, I'll start again since I interrupted. In a society where multiple religious beliefs coexist, secularism, colored with tolerance, leads to the false dichotomy that either, one, all religions are equally valid, or two, no religion should be discussed. And that's what we hear and see, isn't it? One of those two. I would ask that in the olden days, it used to be like that. Now I think we've got something else to do yeah, and and that falls more into the second category. Let's not; it shouldn't even be tolerated in in any public discussion, uh, because it it is foolishness. Um, so. All, all that to say this, Christianity, as a result, our, our Christian, Christianity's teaching of only one way to God pushes directly against what has become one of our culture's core values. That's where we are. So how have people, how are they these days especially, responding? And obviously some 
remain committed to a biblical exclusive gospel, and you all, I would assume all of you, are among those, even though you may have some questions about it, but obviously not everybody does, or we wouldn't need to be here this morning talking about this. So here, I'm just going to give you one example of how one segment of Christendom has responded to this turmoil and these kinds of debates about the place of religion and the place of Christianity's core teaching. And, and so there's an example of a, the, the popular repudiation of the exclusive gospel is exemplified in progressive Christianity. And I've talked about that here before. And our, Marilyn and my growing understanding of that is kind of what triggered our involvement in this class. Ricky, it, Jeff had already been going in, in this direction in some re- different ways, but we became very aware of, of this. It's, very, it's becoming more and more well-defined as a movement. Progressive Christianity is <clears throat> a recent movement that has essentially polished, refurbished, and repackaged classic theological liberalism. It's a new expression of classic theological liberalism. Now, I have previously shared with you this quote. Uh, This was taken off the homepage of one of Progressive Christianity's websites, uh, progressivechristianity.org. And as you can see, by calling ourselves progressive, we mean we are Christians who recognize the faithfulness of other people who have other names for the way to God's realm and acknowledge that their ways are true for them as our ways are true for us. Well, that's just one way of stating the the pluralism that we have mentioned. Um, Certain elements of progressive Christianity have have put together kind of an eight-point I guess you could call it kind of a statement of faith or a a statement of belief. Here's Article 2. We are Christians who affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey. Um, Let me give you another quote. This is... uh, from a guy named Anthony Coleman, Evangelical Experience, uh, is, I think, the book that he wrote. And it, he describes how progressive Christianity has moved to embrace this classic liberal worldview. The liberal is more likely to believe that, one, the doctrines of the church may have to be reinterpreted figuratively or symbolically and may not be literally true. To the Bible is a collection of books that records Hebrew and Christian religious thought about God, but is not literally the inspired word of God. And three, their tradition is one appropriate, one appropriate response to the divine, but other religious paths are also valid. Then he makes this observation at the end of that longer statement. Once you give up an inerrant text, I don't know how you can say anything theologically about God. And so this, this is a, an example of a current movement that operates within the scope of what most would call Christian or Christendom um, and um, is gaining traction in our culture. And so this movement, Progressive Christianity, differs in, this is my personal view, from classic liberalism in that <clears throat> it has proliferated to a degree that was not experienced in the days of classic liberalism. In other words, it's, it's, more, it's getting more entrenched than it did 50 to 100 years ago. Here's why. Because it is media-driven through uh, blogs, podcasts, and major conferences. Uh, classic liberalism tended... Now, Jeff, I'd like you to listen to this statement, and you tell me if you... Classic liberalism tended to be debated debated most vigorously in academic and theological circles. Is that that kind of... Now it's gotten into the mainstream. Um, And so um, as a result of of this movement being media-driven, blogs and podcasts and conferences, they are consumed by younger generations. 
And, and the second observation about that is this, and often these blogs, podcasts, and conferences are presented by younger men and women, very articulate, uh, believable, and, and examples are the late Rachel Held Evans, Peter Entz, uh, Sarah Bessie, and we could put 10 or 20 or 30 more names. Many of these who are um, in the, the promotion publicly of this point of view, this theological worldview, uh, grew up in evangelical homes and churches. Lots of them did. So here's, here's my perspective. The, 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 as a result, the belief that Christianity teaches or allows a diverse understanding of the gospel of Christ, that's the progressive worldview, um, that belief has reached a much wider audience than ever before, many of whom would never have read some of the heavier, denser theological works that were available 50 to 100 years ago. I was tempted to just jump on Jeff and have him tell us what some of those old works were, but I'm not going to pin him down, although I'm sure he knows. Okay, yeah. Trent. So, um, in regard to like people in a slanderous way, but are there seminaries? It used to be that seminaries, you know, had the doctrine and the theology. So, are the seminaries, different seminaries, just infiltrated with different theologies now? Or, you know, if you were trying to send somebody to a seminary, um, would they still have all that diversity of thought, the progressive? Or there's some seminaries that are just for where you send people to colleges or you know for learning that's not going to have is it still all diverse with different theologies? Okay, uh, her question is for for you who are watching elsewhere. Um, what's what's the state or status of seminaries and uh, theological schools of training, Bible colleges or Christian colleges? With this, and I, I think it's it's all over the board. Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like I could name you half a dozen schools and seminaries that are solidly evangelical yet, but others have have bought into this certainly, and um, and there and, and there are uh, classically liberal seminaries, you know, and that that spectrum is represented academically. All, all the way, and and so you cannot simply look at a school or go to a school um, seminary or um, uh, at another level, and that is Christian uh, that claims to be Christian and assume anything. We have to do due diligence in in uh, finding those that are faithful. Uh, this Peter Entz that I mentioned was a a professor at I don't remember what school, Westminster, and he was uh, he was asked to leave because of these views, uh, and I'm sure that is duplicated in many other places. Okay, let me yeah. In a couple of observations. Um, traditional liberalism. Uh, prides itself on encouraging all viewpoints to be discussed. Thus, the, the sense of liberal-minded or liberal in their uh, openness type of thing. Uh, <clears throat> progressive liberalism is more known, I think, and it's one of the big changes for not encouraging different viewpoints or respecting viewpoints. Progressive liberalism today basically says they're it, and with varying degrees of punitive application, I have not, I personally have not met a progressive liberal who is willing to tolerate much outside of their viewpoint. So that's just another data point to realize what we're dealing with here. A um, hundred years ago, we could have gotten respect talking with liberals and consideration. And maybe there's, maybe there's, it's an overgeneralization, but yeah. um, there's less of that respect today uh, in, uh, I mean, 
we, we all know these situations where maybe it's just because there's less respect in society. Well, I wonder, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's much more, we are much more free to disrespect publicly and vociferously. I, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't paying much attention 50 to 100 years ago when this was going on. But my, my th feeling is that classic liberalism back then in that era, they weren't all that tolerant either. They were pretty sure that these fun fundies, fighting fundies, were off the bubble pretty badly. And, but, but, and I, I'm thinking, now, I know 50 years ago, I, I was paying attention, uh, strangely, uh, and was watching, as an example, the harbingers of this, Union Theological Seminary, uh, National Council of Churches, uh, some of these groups, they were, they were pretty intolerant even back then. Uh, yeah. their, their tolerance was in such a way as to, to pull you in and to, to use or propagandize you uh, more so than to try to learn from, from you. But you're right, it's been going on for a while, but it seems like it's getting a little bit more militant. Yeah. I uh, Semi-related to what you're saying is is uh, one one of the the value one of the eight values that uh, or eight statements that from which I drew this one uh, w was that it it's it's a higher value to question than to believe. I mean, they actually say it almost exactly that way. Doubt, expressing your doubts, is much more important than giving voice to your doubts than coming to a place where your doubt is resolved and you, you come to an understanding of the truth. Well, let, let me just give you a couple of um, common illustrations that are used by people. Um, they'll throw this out because it makes a certain amount of sense. And one of them is this, you know, you, you, the blind men and the elephant. You've, you've heard that. Um, you get a group of blind guys and you tell them, we're going to show you an elephant and we want you to tell us what you think this thing is. And so, you know, one gets a hold of the tail and he says, oh, an elephant is, is like a rope. You know, another one gets a hold of the leg and he says, oh, no, an elephant's like a tree. And one leans up against the side. No, it's an elephant is a wall. And, you know, get a tusk is a spear and the ear. I don't know what the ear is, a, a big leaf or something. But so the conclusion is that since that's how um, that, that's an illustration of how religion is, everybody has their perspective and their perception. And and so nobody can claim full knowledge of what an elephant is and all the pieces described are part of this elephant. And so religions, like an elephant, are, are diverse parts of some kind of divine reality, but nobody can completely define or claim to define what that divine reality is. Um, I don't want to take too long on this. I mean, it's just, you know, and on the face of it, that kind of thing, oh, yeah, it makes a little sense, you know. We, we have that idea, people do. But let me just remind you that in that illustration, there is an elephant, a one-being thing, has many attributes. And whoever's telling the story can see the whole elephant in its unity, and therefore can make that judgment that none of them have a true perspective. Only when you see it, truthfully see an elephant in its entirety can you know what an elephant is. Here's the second uh, very common and very simplistic illustration, and it's climbing the mountain. You can get to the top of a mountain uh, on, on any one of a number of diverse paths. Um, they all lead to, um, to the same summit. All religions, therefore, lead to God, however you may choose to understand him. This is popularized by, I don't think I included this statement, or oh, I did on your sheet, didn't I? Gandhi's um, Gandhi's viewpoint. The various religions are like different roads converging on the same point. What difference does it make if we follow different routes provided we arrive at the same destination? It makes a certain kind of logical sense. However, just think about this. The truth is that there isn't a single peak or destination in this illustration, much less a single idea of what the peak even looks like. Instead, this mountain is a mountain range in cultural view that has many different peaks, which raises a significant question. How do you get to the highest peak, the real peak? You know, and 
And so we would argue there is only one way to the real peak, the real God. All right, let... We, yep. This, this, you built something really important here. These are two arguments that we're all going to face mm -hmm. with evil, uh, uh, whether it's a blind elk climbing a mountain or whatever. That's the sort of an issue. But, um, but... Five blind man climbing a mountain to find an elephant at the top, right? Yeah, it's very important, and and and, and you, you hit on some of the uh, factors of it. But I, someone uh, had, had uh, cast this as an anecdotalism. The person who approaches you with anecdotes can often be answered and uplifted by similar anecdotes. If, if you can. If, if that's how their mind is working, then an anecdotal answer will tend to bring them along. You mm hit -hmm. on a couple of them. Uh, uh, an important point with the first one, the blind and the elephant, is that what, what they've said is true, as you said. Uh, in addition, they have admitted that there are blind people doing this, and, and one of the messages of the Bible is to be uh, healed of your spiritual blindness, and, and we can anecdotally say, as you said, that uh, once healed or no longer blind, you are able to see the elephant which they have admitted exists. This is a real good discussion point. The other thing is that climbing a mountain uh, with anecdotes, not all trails lead to the They are wrong in saying that. Some trails will lead to deadly drop-offs, and some to dead ends. And so that one's a, even a bit easier. But if they want to approach us anecdotally, we can answer them anecdotally with a very truthful representations that it's not true that all trails lead to the top of the mountain. Sure, and it'd be pretty easy to find contemporary illustrations. Uh, every year, people fall to their deaths uh, climbing Everest into a crevasse or over an ice cliff or something like that. So, yeah, the, the fight fire with fire kind of deal. We, we can't get through a class like this without touching these bases of the biblical claims of exclusivity. Let me make this point. Christians didn't invent the claim of Jesus being the only way. This is not our claim. It's his. We're only relating his claim to the world and the claim of the writers of the New Testament. So let's just touch on these. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. How much clearer could it be? The only way to argue against that is say, well, that's probably not what Jesus said because the New Testament isn't a reliable record and he was deluded. And there we've worked through all kinds of ways to of uh, helping establish confidence in you in the New Testament. Um, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. John 8, 24. Peter, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name, none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Paul, 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And of course, Jesus' words again, Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So it, it's, it, it's the clear testimony of the New Testament that no one can know God the Father except through the person of Jesus Christ and on the basis of his word. Uh, there was no ambiguity in those statements. So um, we also need to touch the base of the New Testament's warnings about getting this wrong. Um, Galatians 1, 6 and following. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. It's a very strong term. 
As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Um, 1 Corinthians 15.1, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, we could spend weeks and months uh, studying those with great profit, but I just want to point out a couple of things. Notice what Paul said, as of first importance. This is a critical truth. Paul is reminding them of the gospel. Um, this scripture, um, 1 Corinthians 15.1, is not a full explanation of the gospel. What it does is establish that the gospel, which we're going to try and define later, but that the gospel is based on these historical facts. Christ died and rose again. Um, the death of Christ satisfied the just demands of a holy God, and the resurrection validated that achievement and defeated death. That's how all that was accomplished, the physical death and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it's my personal view that when it, Paul says Christ died for our sins, uh, and that he was resurrected are the two key statements. The burial, he died and was buried. What do you do to it? It, it proves that he was dead, that he died. What do you do to a dead person? You bury them. Uh, what happens when a person is resurrected? He shows up. And so the appearances are the evidence of the resurrection. The burial is the evidence of death. And the appearances uh, were to hundreds of people, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this and could have and would have disputed his claims if it wasn't true. So without doing, a, as I said, an exegetical study of these and many other passages, I just want to point out the critical importance of the core truths of the gospel. Any gospel declaration, teaching, or claim that does not have Jesus' death and resurrection at its center as the sole basis for bringing man into an eternal relationship with God is a distorted message and must be rejected. Even if it's presented in the most compelling way by apparently highly credible people or beings, even if he or she looks like an angel. Yes? Question, David. This all seems to beg the question, what's the motivation in preaching a distorted gospel? What's the motivation in not believing in the explicitity of Jesus' claim? question is, uh, what's the motivation behind somebody uh, not remaining committed to this, and, and I'm just going to, uh, top of the head, one thing is uh, public, uh, ex a higher degree of public acceptance, if, if you can soften these claims that are so anti-loving or, you know, I, I think it, it's an attempt to accommodate to, to the culture a little bit. Um, you know, I, I wasn't involved in a lot of theological discussions 50 years ago, but I teacher, I heard him say, uh, a man's theology is dictated by his morality. Yeah, and I was going to say something sort of like that, too. Uh, one reason for rejecting uh, many of the core theology, theological truths is uh, we don't want to be accountable. What if, if this was really true, then I'm in trouble, and let, so I'm going to structure a way of thinking in my mind where I am less uh, exposed to the consequences of core theology. Yes? In his own eyes, right. Because it's much more comfortable that way. We all want to be gods ourselves. Sure. Right. Yeah, it's a very self, self-satisfying, self-supporting way. And we'll get touch on some of that in a little bit, too. 
might get defined by scripture. Say that. We like to talk about love, but we don't like it defined by scripture. Right. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we love love, the idea of love. Actually, I was reading a J.I., part of J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, which I will tell you probably for the 20th time in my ministry career here, you should read that someday. Um, and he said, he just made the point in one chapter where he talks about the wrath of God, that the wrath of God is f more frequently mentioned than the love of God, just in terms of biblical content. Um, all right, so let me just offer a few thoughts on how we define the gospel. And here, uh, you know, we, we could profitably read probably dozens or hundreds of, of ways of expressing this truth, but let me just kind of shape it a little bit through several, um, several ways of expressing it. So essentially, the gospel, the, the New Testament gospel, is a declaration of the good news that God has taken the initiative to satisfy the sin debt of mankind. That's basically what it is. It's a declaration, proclamation. The word in the New Testament for gospel is the Greek word euangelion. Forms of that word are found about 130 times in the New Testament. In classical Greek, uh, and euangelos was the one who brought a message of victory uh, or other political or personal news that caused joy. I mean, that, that was good news. Um, the verb form means to speak as a messenger of gladness, to proclaim good news. In fact, uh, in some circles, uh, military circles, especially in, in king's courts and uangelion was a technical term for the, for the message of victory brought uh, like in an ancient war, if the army was out in some other country fighting a battle and they won a big battle and they would send a runner back uh, to the capital city to announce the victory, he was the Yuan Galeon, and what he gave was the, the, the good news of victory. Um, Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia has, I just kind of picked this not because it's the best one I've ever seen, but it's good. It, it does hit at it, I think. The central truth of the gospel is that God has provided a way of salvation for humanity through the gift of his son to the world. He suffered as a sacrifice for sin, overcame death, and now offers a share in his triumph to all who will accept it. The gospel is good news because it is a gift of God, not something that must be earned by penance or by self-improvement. The gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It is not directions on what we should do to save ourselves, but it's an announcement instead of what has been done to save us. And the gospel is that Jesus has done something in history so that when we are united to him by faith, we get the benefits of his accomplishment. Maybe I should rephrase that. The gospel is that God through Jesus has done something in history so that when we are united to him by faith, we get the benefits of his accomplishment and we are saved. What he has done is to satisfy the judicial wrath of God. That's upon every person. And God has accepted the sacrifice of his son Jesus' full payment. And when we declare that, we are declaring the gospel. The gospel declares that this gift comes by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Faith, the only acceptable work. It is the only thing you can do to receive the gift. Christ is the only acceptable substitute. And grace is the only possible way we can receive its benefits. In other words, not by merit, but as a gift. Faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And so that leads me to uh, the next reason, or maybe an expansion of some of this, uh, why we accept, why we submit to, why we defend the gospel as, an exclusive, as exclusive of any other claim about how we receive the gift of salvation. And I'm just going to tell you that theology 
Biblical theology requires, demands an exclusive gospel. A theistic worldview that is based on Scripture's revelation of God, a biblical, which includes a biblical understanding of God and humanity, can, on, can result in only one teaching about how God and man can come into an eternal relationship. If mankind could have reached God by any other way, Jesus would not have had to die. It's that simple on one level. Every distortion of the gospel, if you think about it, includes the addition of something to the work of God through Christ, which either explicitly or implicitly says that, well, it wasn't enough. And I need to provide something. I need to add something. I need to um, cooperate in God's saving work by bringing some value to that and making it effective. This, this, this shows up uh, early in the New Testament. And uh, we talk about the Judaizers. And these were Jewish people who had become Christians or were considering or were arguing about it, and these were people who acknowledged Jesus but required, in addition, something else. And in the case of, of the Judaizers uh, with whom Paul dealt, it was circumcision or other, and perhaps other elements of the law of Moses. We can't just go through Christ alone by faith. We, we've, you've got to do something, don't you? I mean, it only makes human sense. We've got to do something. And so that system, the Judaizers, acknowledging Jesus but adding something, represents all of the many and varied distortions of religious systems of the last 2,000 years. Uh, in fact, if you, here's to your comment, I think, a little bit, Lynn, earlier. The, the most important commandment, you know what it is, quote it to me. Love the Lord your God. All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. You add any other love to that first thing, and it's idolatry. An inclusive gospel is idolatry because it elevates something else to the level of the sufficient work of Christ to achieve salvation. Okay, so let's rehearse some basic theological truths. The depravity of man. All have sinned. Uh, that sin is, uh, is imputed, and it is actual. Uh, we are guilty of Adam's sin by direct connection to him through our humanness. We are guilty of individual sins which express the sin nature that we have received at conception. Depravity of man teaches that every human is guilty before God of sin. Some are worse sinners than others in terms of the outward expression of it. But depravity, that theology, does not teach that every person is as sinful or evil as they can be, but that every person has failed to meet God's standard. And even though they may do good at times, uh, the capacity for evil is within all of us. That extends to the entire creation. Every war, Every shooting, every injustice, every tsunami, every fatal car wreck, cancer diagnosis, adulterous affair reaffirms that there's something wrong with the world. It is bent, entire creation, broken, distorted, and it groans in its agony, Romans 8.22. Something is very wrong. And you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody in the world who, who wouldn't acknowledge, you know, there's something wrong. There's always some kind of trouble. There's always some kind of issue. There's always something wrong. And we cannot fix it. We've tried for all of human history, and we can't. Depravity of man. Here's the other core theological doctrine that uh, enters into this discussion. That's the holiness of God. Uh, that's the opposite uh, pole. And here's just one of hundreds and hundreds of representative scripture. This one is representative of, of hundreds. For thus, this is Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, 
who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I am holy, God says, so you be holy. Good luck. So the separation of a sinful humankind from an infinitely holy God is fatal. Wages of sin is death. The law of God's been broken. And the biblical term for the response of a holy God to sinful humanity is wrath, God's wrath. And that, that's not an emotional kind of a wrath. I get mad when I lose control over myself, and, you know, that's one kind of wrath. This is a, this is a judicial wrath. If, if I uh, am caught breaking a law, the wrath of the judicial system comes on me. And it may be by a very kindly smiling judge, but it's wrath anyway. And so um, that's God's response to sinful humanity. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, so here, here's what all this has resulted in. Religion, religions are man's attempt to deflect the wrath, to gain God's approval and spend the afterlife in some version of heaven or eternal bliss. And an inclusive gospel accepts all manner of human effort to be better and gain God's acceptance. So the biblical doctrines of man's sin, which is total, and God's salvation, which is totally his initiative, those biblical doc doctrines make it clear that man can contribute nothing no matter how sincere the contribution. I read the story not long ago of a, of a nurse who distributed uh, to a number of patients a medication, and she did it by the letter, but the bag of medication was mislabeled. It was a very tragic story, and people died. And, you know, uh, medical um, issues of that nature uh, are common. You just you can do a Google search and find all kinds of stories. So since and, and it was sincerely done. So sincerity and all out human effort to please God is is a good thing because it makes you a better person in terms of your relationship with society and people around you, but it does nothing for your eternal destiny. Only an exclusive work of God can satisfy the debt that we owe. So, the heart of the gospel, we're going to get a little bit theological here. The heart of the gospel is payment by substitution. I love this um, John Stott's way of expressing this in his book, The Cross of Christ. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of man, of sin, is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Isn't that thoughtful? Um, J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, has an entire chapter called The Heart of the Gospel. And, and the heart of the gospel, he says, is the concept of propitiation. Um, I, I, I'm disappointed in those translations of the Bible that take some of these old-fashioned theological words out. Uh, and, and Packer says, uh, has the word propitiation any place in your Christianity? 
In the faith of the New Testament, it is central. The love of God, the taking of manhood by the Son, the meaning of the cross, Christ's heavenly intercession, and the way of salvation are all to be explained in terms of it. And any explanation from which the thought of propitiation is missing will be incomplete and indeed actually misleading by New Testament standards. Through the sacrifice of Christ, the wrath of God against us has been quenched. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 4, verse 10. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And Packer says in uh, that same general context, the gospel without propitiation, at its heart is another gospel than that which Paul preached. So um, we uh, intuitively as people try to make end runs around the hard truth, the hard truth being that we can contribute nothing to what God has accomplished. And so every religious system that does not have this gospel uh, is an end run that will fail. And it's a serious issue because it has such incredible eternal consequences. Um, Hang on, let me get a couple of books here. I'm just going to take a few minutes and read some quotes. Uh, I love reading how other people put things, and and it. Uh, uh, I'm particularly impressed by, especially in this area, some of Timothy Keller's stuff. And I'm I'm not pretending that he's the only one or the best one, but um, I've encountered some things here that I just wanted to kind of randomly pick out a few things that just describe in various ways in in a, what feels to me like a very compelling way some of these issues. And, and let me just explain Timothy Keller. He's Presbyterian as can be, and, and as a Reformed theologian, I have some issues with him, and I would like to put him in his place. No, <laughs> he's, he's, an amazing, he's, a, he's one of the giants of the faith, in my opinion, even though he has a little bit of a different theological spectrum. But in this, in this area, um, he's got it right and expresses it really well. Here's Let me just pick out a couple of things. The essence of what makes, this is the book uh, Encounters with Jesus. The essence of what makes Christianity different from every other religion and form of thought is this. Every other religion says if you want to find God, if you want to improve yourself, if you want to have higher consciousness, if, if you want to connect with the divine, however it's defined, you have to do something. You have to gather your strength, and you have to keep the rules, you have to free your mind, then you have to fill your mind, and you have to be above average. Every other religion or human philosophy says if you want to make the world right or make yourself right, then summon all your str- reason and your strength and live in a certain way. Christianity says the exact opposite. Every other religion and philosophy says you have to do something to connect to God. But Christianity says, no, Jesus Christ came to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Every other religion says, Jesus says, here are the answers to the big questions. But Christianity says, Jesus is the answer to them all. So many systems of thought appeal to strong, successful people because they play directly into their belief that if you're strong and hardworking enough, you will prevail. But Christianity is not just for the strong, it's for everyone, especially for people who admit that where it really counts, they're weak. It's for people who have the particular kind of strength to admit that their flaws are not superficial, their heart is deeply disordered, and that they are incapable of rectifying themselves. It is for those who can see that they need a Savior, that they need Jesus Christ dying on the cross to put them right with God. The very genius of Christianity is that it's not about, here's what you have to do to find God. Christianity is about God coming to earth in the form of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to find you. 
Um, and he, he's talking about the difference between uh, saying that, which is kind of how many religions uh, project themselves. Here is the way that you can come to know God. This is the way. And the different, the truth, the truth and the life, and and then Jesus saying, "No, I am the way, the truth, and the life." Um, let me let me read one more. By the way. Um, this is from his book, The Reason for God. It's been out a number of years. There are those who are saying it's our age's, uh, uh, the equivalent of Lewis's uh, mere Christianity. And I don't know if it will stand the test of time the way that has, but it, it's of that nature. And uh, uh, this is one of the books that I put on the resource list. If you didn't see it coming in and you would like to have... I, I want to urge you to build an apologetics library. You don't have to have 30 books in it. Get f three or four or five of the best ones because you're going to be dealing with people increasingly if you're engaged in the culture at all, and even with some of your family members, where these are, these are questions that are going to come up. And would, um, we're doing the class to help prepare you to answer that. So, and, and this is one of the books that I put on my part of the list. Oh, let's see. Um, This is uh, restating some, somewhat the same thing, but you may say, fine, I understand that if you build your identity on anything but God, it leads to breakdown. But why must the solution be Jesus in Christianity? Why can't some other religion do as well or just my own personal faith in God? The answer to that is that there is a profound and fundamental difference between the way that other religions tell us to seek salvation and the way described in the gospel of Jesus. All other major faiths have founders who are teachers that show the way to salvation. Only Jesus claimed to actually be the way of salvation himself. Um, um, yes? RJ was saying something about the motivation of why people believe this way, but I think we're really in a culture where people we have the greatest need to belong, and especially our young generation, to be to be exclusive, to believe one way, means you're going to exclude someone else. And I really believe that it's motivated by, I want, I can't exclude someone, and the same with sin. I can't say that is a sin because I'm excluding them. You know, Jesus dealt with sin, or the gospel deals with sin, and our culture doesn't want to say this or that is a sin, because it excludes people. They, you deal with sin, and you have grace on people who, who have been forgiven of that sin. So you're just stealing my thunder from the next point. No, no, you're, you're exactly right. I really think our young culture, and I see the culture, they don't want to be they don't, they so struggle with not including because they don't want to be rejected themselves. And we have to be willing to be rejected, just like Jesus was in his thought. And in, in theological, and people have thought of great learning, like the Pharisees and Sadducees. We have to be willing to be able to disagree with, with that. But I really think at least what I see in the young culture, they want to belong, and that's some of the motivation mm -hmm. is that they accept these thinking because they cannot um, think about rejection themselves or re re not including someone. An offshoot of that is that if 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 I am required to acknowledge that there is sin in somebody's life, that there is such a thing as sin that offends God, then I then I that comes right back on me, you know. Three fingers pointing back at me, and I'm I'm not quite willing to do that. Let me uh, let me read one more paragraph here, and then a couple other things. 
Christianity's basic message differs at root with the assumptions of traditional religion. The founders of every other major religion essentially came as teachers, not as saviors. They came to say, do this and you will find the divine. But Jesus came essentially as a savior rather than a teacher, though he was that as well. Jesus says, I am the divine. Come to you to do what you could not do for yourselves. The Christian message is that we are saved not by our record, but by Christ's record. So Christianity is not religion or irreligion. It is something else altogether. Now, here's something to think about. Uh, just a few thoughts about the inclusivity and exclusivity of Jesus. You realize, of course, that, that uh, he, uh, our message is both, and is what you're touching on, Tarina. Um, if we're going to talk about the exclusive gospel of Jesus as the only way, we also need to talk about the inclusive gospel. Here's an article I came across. Jesus' inclusivity shocks the religious leaders. He throws open the doors of the kingdom to sinners of all stripes, and he rails against the religious for the self-righteous piety of exclusivity. This Jesus says he is the only, he is the one way to God, the truth, the life. No one comes to God except through him. Got that? His way is narrow. The gate is small. He is the bread of heaven, and unless you consume him, you will perish. If you're offended by the shocking nature of these exclusive claims, then you can walk away, just like the crowds did in John 6. The Jesus of the Gospels is offensive because of how inclusive he is. The Jesus of the Gospels is offensive because of how exclusive he is. The church is offended by his inclusivity. The world is offended by his exclusivity. Thus, we are inclined to weaken the offense, either by minimizing his inclusive call or by downplaying his exclusive claims. Unfortunately, whenever we lop off one side or the other, we wind up with a Jesus in our own image. Instead, we should celebrate both Jesus' inclusiveness and his exclusivity, for this is the polarity that makes Jesus so irresistibly compelling. This gospel, this exclusive, narrow gospel, is open to everyone. And we don't always get that. You know, sometimes it's helpful to have a word picture, an illustration uh, to hang on to or to share with others. And I'm going to give you a couple. And this goes back to your comments, David, about anecdotal stuff. And maybe some of these can help you as you think through your own situation or people that you're talking with. Um, and I, I got some of this from various places, and so I, I borrow freely. God didn't call me to be original, but to be effective. And so I don't have an original bone in my body, but I, I love to borrow from people. <clears throat> Let me just, um, here's one person's comment. In our day, we don't like narrow, exclusive options. We might think God is constraining and restricting our choices. But isn't this how love is expressed? Okay, here it comes. Imagine if I were to tell my wife, baby, you're number one. Of all of my other wives, you're number one. <laughs> no matter how many other wives I take, you'll be my first. That might make for compelling reality television, but that's not going to be a good marriage. Love demands exclusivity. My wife doesn't want to be number one. She wants to be the only one. Not because she doesn't love me, but because she does. Here's another, and I've uh, massaged this a bit. In the end, it's like two locals telling a visitor how to get into a building. One tells the visitor he must go through the main gate, while the other says to go through an easier side door. You don't have to go with it. The latter fears the main gate is too far away and too hard to enter. Initially, this local appears to make it easier for the visitor to get in, while the other seems to impose a harsher standard until you find that there is no side door. Now, here, here's a, a little story you could tell. It reminds us that the death, the death of Jesus is not the end of the story. It's not the only truth to consider. Suppose a group of us are taking a hike in a very dense forest. As we get deeper into the forest, we become lost. 
Realizing that taking the wrong path now might mean that we will lose our lives, we begin to fear, to be afraid. However, we soon notice that ahead in the distance where the trail splits, there are two human forms at the fork in the road. Running up to these people, we notice that one has on a park ranger uniform. He's standing there perfectly healthy and alive. The other person is lying face down dead. Now, which of these two are we going to ask about the way out? Obviously, the one who's living. He says to you, I know where this path goes. I've been on it. In fact, I hacked this path out of the woods. I know where it leads. And I know that there's no other path that'll get you to safety. How many of us would consciously say, no thanks, that's too narrow a way of thinking. I think I'll go with the dead guy. And when it comes to eternal matters, we're going to ask the one who is alive, the way out of our predicament. This is not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Joseph Smith. It's Jesus. He's unique. He came back from the dead. And this demonstrates that he is the one whom he claimed to be, the unique son of God and the only way in which a person can have a personal relationship with the true and living God. And the consequences of getting this wrong are eternal. Okay, I'm done. If you have your little card with comments about possible future classes or specific questions, or even scathing rebuttals or evaluations, just don't sign it so we won't hate you. Uh, but make sure that either those are on one of the chairs or you turn them in back there, or give them to Jeff or me or Marilyn or somebody, and we will uh, uh, prayerfully consider whether to go forward with something else or how. And uh, thank you for being faithful and consistent class members, attentive I see some of you sleep a little. I mean, I always see that when I'm up front, but that's okay. I'm not going to look at anybody. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for being, uh, giving us the way, not as something to do or a path to follow or a standard to achieve, but a person to trust, just to cast ourselves on him in um, humble and submissive faith, knowing that as we cast ourselves on him, we are absorbed into his life. We receive his life. We become in him, in Christ. And that's how you see us in and through your son and um, that message, though unpopular, is wildly and is wildly distorted, is still the message. And I pray that we as a church, as individuals, will uh, stay committed to uh, the gospel that we read about and have experienced in the New Testament. So thank you for the truth and that you have revealed the truth to us. We are not left to stumble in the dark on a path whose end we don't know. And uh, so provide also now um, direction and discernment as we think uh, ahead. And as we celebrate in just a few short days, we can have the incarnation um, of Jesus and his, the promise of his coming again that we will, we will be given joy and uh, profound gratitude and uh, true worship uh, for what you've done. So uh, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.